0: The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Okay, welcome back. Whoa. It's a bright mic. So I have the pleasure to introduce uh, our esteemed colleague, uh, Joe Barry, um, to tell us about the relationship between photosynthesis and the fluorescence from plants. And um, just a, a very brief introduction to Joe. He, um, He's a real giant of the field and has uh, pioneered um, really innovative and new methods to understand the exchange of CO2, water, energy uh, between the biosphere and the atmosphere. Um, and uh, one of the great things, again, about the KISS uh, fellowship, these KISS workshops, is the ability to interact with a diverse group of people who you haven't interacted with before. And so uh, Joe is certainly one of those people that I think many of us look forward to, to hearing from. Let's see, a PhD from the University of British Columbia in 1970. And prior to that, um, a master's degree and BS degree from the University of California, Davis, where he studied chemistry and soil science. And he is currently uh, from the Carnegie Institute, Department of Global Ecology, and also Department of Biological Sciences at Stanford University. Joe, thanks very much.
1: Thanks very much. It's a real, really looking forward to this. Uh, I see my role as sort of uh, bridging the, uh, uh, the 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 territory between uh, what Ian talked about and uh, really getting down into what the, how the satellites work and uh, how how we get the data from space. Uh, what we're what we're interested in is uh, Understanding the relationship between fluorescence and photosynthesis. These are the only things that uh, fluoresce along the land in the land surface. Are pretty much the only things that fl- fluoresce in relatively long wavelengths, red w- red wavelengths. These are chloroplasts. This is in a actually a moss cell. Doesn't make much difference. The uh, chloroplasts of any uh, uh, photosynthetic organism uh, glow when illuminated. Uh, the emission of light uh, by chlorophyll uh, is, is light that was previously absorbed uh, by chlorophyll. It, it really occurs because the chlorophyll molecule itself can store energy. And that's a really key thing in photosynthesis the light that's absorbed has to get from where it's absorbed to where it can actually do some work. And the fact that uh, it can be absorbed and held in an uh, electronic state in the uh, chlorophyll molecules is, is really quite important. And that isn't really any longer as a photon. It's, it's been given the name in photosynthesis of an exciton. And the emission of a new photon is one of the ways that the exciton can be uh, degraded or uh, brought back to its uh, uh, ground state. It only lives for a few nanoseconds at most, but it is this ability that makes photosynthesis possible because it can uh, move around and get from uh, where it's uh, happening where where the actual absorption occurs to where it can uh, do some work. The fluorescence and photochemistry, the photochemistry is the work. Fluorescence is this re-emission process. They co-occur so that fluorescence is uh, really intimately related to the primary reactions of photosynthesis. And they've been used since the 1930s really, fluorescence as a probe for what's going on in the photochemistry, photophysics, and biochemical dynamics of photosynthesis. It's a really convenient thing for laboratory studies because it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on in a chloroplast, but if you can look at the light that's coming off the chloroplast, you get a a lot of information from that very easily. Uh, It's cheap, it's uh, quick, Uh, so it's it's, it's a very good way of looking at things. One thing I meant to say in the start of this is that uh, I would really appreciate you interrupting me at any point to ask questions because this is kind of a technical subject. I'm gonna try and make it simple, but at the same time I, I may make some mistakes and I may confuse you in some things. Uh, so chlorophyll in the photosynthetic organisms is really bound proteins. It isn't just floating around in lipids or uh, water or organic solvents or something like that. Uh, they're really very highly organized protein complexes uh, that uh, are normally associated with a photochemical reaction center. And they function, the pigment protein molecules function essentially as an antenna where they energy is largely absorbed. Several hundred chlorophylls associated with those and a couple of chlorophylls here in the area that do, does the photochemistry. So uh, it's a way this is an expensive thing to make. Uh, it has a number of other cofactors associated with it. For example, things that make water or, or make take oxygen from water, making oxygen uh, so that Processing electrons, passing those electrons on to other elements, other uh, carriers in the membrane and things like that. All that's expensive to run just a couple of chlorophylls, but if you can have a couple of hundred chlorophylls, which effectively funnel energy to it, uh, then uh, there's uh, that that increases the efficiency of the overall uh, uh, investment in this thing. Now there in terms of higher plants, which we'll be primarily focused on here. There are two kinds of photochemical reaction centers. They, they function in sequence. Uh, and uh, for reasons that I've never understood, the first one in the sequence is photosystem two, and the second one is photosystem one. Photosystem two is the unit which takes the uh, electron from water and passes it on uh, to electron carriers that function to uh, get some energy out of that electron and pass it on to Photosystem two, which gives it another boost and gets it up to a high enough level to reduce carbon dioxide. So uh, there isn't enough energy in a single photon to actually do that in one photo act. The two are combined together. Uh, most of the fluorescence actually comes from Photosystem two, So for the rest of the talk, we'll pretty much ignore Photosystem I. Uh, it's not completely clear why Photosystem one has much, less, has much less fluorescence and why it doesn't vary as much. But uh, it is convenient because this is where all the regulation has to happen in terms of electron transport because it's the start of the process. Uh, One thing I just kind of put in is we're not going to, we really won't talk about it much, but uh, it's it's something that's really uh, a lot of interest in the field of photosynthesis right now is this, uh, the concepts of how the excitons are processed in the reaction centers are going through a considerable rethink as the result of some new uh, methods, uh, principally Graham Fleming's group up at Berkeley, uh, Scholl's group in Toronto and others. Uh, It was originally thought that these excitons sort of lived on individual chlorophyll molecules, and they kind of just jumped around in a random walk until they bumped into a reaction center and then poof, they do something. Uh, recent experiments indicate that, in fact, uh, the excitons become delocalized as they would in a, say, a crystalline structure. And they kind of slosh around within the, this excitation space uh, and uh, move in sort of a wave-like pattern and it's called quantum coherence. It's something that probably affects some of the things that we'll talk about in the conference because uh, what happens is that instead of uh, things happening just by probability of bumping into something, these excitons kind of sample the whole field available to them and they choose which way they're going and that's it. So it's a, it changes the way we look at the way the reaction centers work, but I couldn't come close to even uh, explaining how it works. But one of the things that I find really fascinating about this, and I love it, evolution understands quantum mechanics. And they figured it out a couple of billion years before we did. Uh, and I guess it would be... One other thing I should say there is the reason we can say is evolution understands it. It's not really a property of the chlorophyll molecule that causes this to happen. It's the property of the proteins. It's the way the proteins hold the chlorophyll molecules and the electronic structure of the proteins themselves that allow this to happen. So it gives it a kind of pseudo-crystalline nature, uh, and that's something that evolved. Not just uh, something that came about because of the chemistry of chlorophyll. Uh, this is uh, one of the key papers in this area. This is in Nature, uh, what, uh, 2007. Probably first publications on this were about 2005. And this is uh, a uh, chlorophyll protein that's in bacteria that links the antenna to the uh, reaction center. So it's a somewhat different system, but it probably is functioning very much the same way. And as near as I can tell, the, the really important thing about this is that this, uh, this is kind of the excitation space of the thing. And it's moving as you go, uh, go through time here. So that you get uh, the, this, the whole, uh, sort of, Structure. this is an electronic structure of the protein. Uh, it's kind of uh, electronic field is changing according to these, uh, or in a, in a pattern which is reminiscent of a wave sloshing within that protein. Now, go back quite a long ways. This is a guy by the name of uh, Hans Kautsky, who... Uh, was one of the first to really get interested in chlorophyll fluorescence. Uh, he really uh, is a, a founder of the field. Uh, he described, for example, that if you uh, hold a leaf up to the light, to a sunlight, a leaf that's been in the dark, and you uh, look at it with a sensitive uh, light-collecting device and filter, you can see that the fluorescence starts out pretty low and it goes through a number of uh, transitions coming to a a peak value and then comes back down again. Uh, And for years and years, this has been the focus of uh, a lot of research in fluorescence. And uh, in some ways, it's been kind of a, uh, while. it's been good he started it, It's also been kind of frustrating in a way because everybody kind of thinks, well, fluorescence just goes up and down, you have all these crazy transients, uh, and it uh, probably doesn't mean anything. Well, uh, that's really what I uh, want to get at in this talk is to uh, get over this impression that it's very complicated and that uh, we can interpret chlorophyll fluorescence in some fairly simple ways. Uh, I'm going to come back to this slide quite a few times in the talk, so I don't want to try and explain all of it at this point. What I want you to do at this point is get this across. that Think of the Photosystem two as kind of a sophisticated integrated circuit uh, that has a function and some feedback loops, which uh, it uses to achieve that function. And the function really is that if you think about photosynthesis, you have light coming in at one end, and you have carbon dioxide being fixed at the other end. Uh, Carbon dioxide fixation is an irreversible process, and that's fine. Uh, It's going to go along, you, you hope, at the maximum rate that it can possibly go. But the first reaction in the whole chain that feeds carbon dioxide fixation is also an irreversible reaction. And if it uh, were going at a different rate than the rate of electron use in carbon dioxide fixation, then you'd have to find some place to put those electrons or uh, uh, figure out some other way to deal with that. And the way nature has dealt with that is to build into that first step a number of regulatory properties that would allow, for example this this happens to be the stock market, but uh, let 's say it was light <laughs> and uh, over here we have the output to carbon dioxide fixation, and let 's say that uh, this this happens to be under that condition, the maximum rate which electrons can be used for carbon dioxide fixation, uh, but for here there 's uh input light intensity exceeds that capacity. And what happens is that this clips the uh, output so that it matches the capacity. It also has the ability if the uh, output, uh, if the sink over here changes in its uh, activity, it has the ability to respond to that and clip this at a different place. Uh, and it's more or less a homeostatic kind of mechanism to keep this system in balance so that uh, what's going in over here in this first step matches what's coming out over here in this final step. Uh, A little bit more about fluorescence. As I mentioned with Kautsky, all you really need... Yeah? You bet. Well, you're absolutely right. They, they aren't all created equal. Uh, it, uh, there is generally, if you look at leaves that are at the bottom of the canopy at the top, the ones at the bottom generally have a bit more chlorophyll. Uh, so they've emphasized the part of photosynthesis that they really want to do better at, capturing light. And they've de-emphasized the part of these downstream reactions the CO2 fixation reactions, to more or less optimize the way that they, say, they have a limited amount of protein. Uh, If uh, you think about it, if you just distributed the protein equally from top to bottom, you, you probably wouldn't be very efficient. You could probably improve the efficiency by moving some of the protein that's involved in CO2 fixation to the top of the tree and maybe some of the chlorophyll rearrangement as well. So so there's a kind of optimization process that goes on uh, to to do that. Uh, There's also a lot of dynamics associated with it. For example, those leaves at the bottom of the canopy might be uh, in the shade most of the time, and then a sunfleck comes along. So this was going along like this, and all of a sudden it's up here. Uh, And that's what all of this stuff is for. There are things, it's a kind of a hierarchy of controls where this is, say, 50 milliseconds, 30 seconds, and, and say, 300 seconds kind of uh, feedback controls on this system which allow it to respond to uh, dynamics and drifts. So it's, it's a lot like a... Uh, and, and there's a couple of recent papers that, con- that compare this to industrial control uh, mechanisms. So, uh, indeed, it is very much tied up with the whole question of how uh, you configure a photosynthetic system. In terms of uh, now getting back to how you you look at it, uh, what you need is essentially a, a short-pass filter which uh if you think of it, sunlight it has its spectrum coming like this, going over to about three microns. Uh, chlorophyll, fluores- chlorophyll absorbs in this band from about uh, 350 or so, 360, out to about 670, 680. Uh, this is the part of the f- solar spectrum that the chlorophyll can absorb and can drive photosynthesis. And uh, you want to get at least part of that through to the plant, but all this light that's in the solar spectrum is uh, continuing on out to longer wavelengths. A characteristic of chlorophyll fluorescence is that those photons which are emitted are longer wavelength than those which are absorbed. Uh, they're determined by properties of the uh, of that uh, exciton system. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether you give it something out here or something here, it's gonna give a photon, give a population of photons out with a peak at about 680 or and 740. Uh, so if you have a filter which allows just this portion through, that's a, would be a short pass filter. And the second filter you want is a long pass filter which blocks out all the sunlight. And then you can see this. And that's, yeah.
0: No, they're not.
1: Uh, they're almost, at, at room temperature, these are, uh, all seem to have the properties of coming from Photosystem two. It is confusing because you do see, if you, if you do these experiments at liquid nitrogen temperature, you can see that Photosystem one fluoresces out here at longer wavelengths. But uh, it, it's still kind of, it's still very difficult to determine uh, where it's coming from from completely, but uh, the hmm. dynamics uh, as, as we'll get into, the fluorescence is quite dynamic uh, over short periods of, uh, like Kautsky disco- uh, discovered, and you see very much the same dynamics through this whole uh, area, suggesting that this is mostly chlorophy- uh, no, mostly photosystem two. The, oh, the excitation spectrum, sure. So you have a chlorophyll A, chlorophyll B, carotenoids, uh, all uh, all contributing. So this is definitely a, a carotenoid area here, chlorophyll B, chlorophyll A, chlorophyll A, chlorophyll B. Uh, to fill in that, to try and gather as many photons as we can, particularly in this green area where... Uh, plants have a hole. Sure. It's, uh, it, it certainly can be. Uh, there are also people who have argued that there's quite a lot less. Uh, well, yeah. It also depends. The, the photosystem one reaction center is almost always a quencher uh, and has a much higher uh, chlorophyll density than for photosystem two. So, uh, it, but even if it's thirty or forty percent, it doesn't vary. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very good point that we should uh, pick up. Yeah, this is going to be a good a good area to discuss. I think the the point, first point that uh, uh, Bernard makes is that this peak occurs right in this absorption peak, so that when you have a uh, when you're looking at a fairly dense uh, object, chlorophyll, high chlorophyll density, this the the probability of this escaping as opposed to being reabsorbed by another chlorophyll molecule is, uh, fairly high, so that when you look at the fluorescence that's coming out of a leaf, this peak is really attenuated relative to this peak. This peak is occurring out here beyond the, uh, chlorophyll absorption, where a leaf is basically quite clear. Thank you. Uh, as far as I know, it's first of all unavoidable that uh, if you have a, a pigment system like chlorophyll that's at an excited state, it's going to fluoresce uh, as long as it has that uh, excited state. The it tells us about release valves because once the exciton finds some place to disappear, uh, for example, as heat or as a, uh, in photochemistry, it then, uh, you don't see the fluorescence anymore. And in fact, that's one way that you look at these processes. Uh, uh, Instead of looking at fluorescence yield, you can use a very short uh, excitation pulse and then look at the decay of fluorescence. Fluorescence decays over something like, uh, you know, 50 uh, nanoseconds. Uh, and uh, under some conditions, that can be increased, can be doubled, or more than that. Uh, which uh, and, and those are conditions where there isn't a quencher or something to use the exciton. Uh, it, it isn't as, as active. Uh, it still is only a small percentage of the actual flux of energy through the chlorophyll system. So I think we, we look at it more as a probe than as a, uh, as a, a, a primary mechanism of getting rid of excitation energy. So uh, this is... GOSAT is the the satellite that we, uh, has, has really precipitated this meeting. And uh, it is uh, really able to do this sort of analogous thing to two filters. And I won't go into doing that, into telling you about how that's done because uh, uh, Christian will, will tell you that in, in, in amazing detail. Uh, The thing which is, I think has really attracted us on this is that when you look at the fluorescence which is gathered by this satellite, uh, it uh, seems to go along with the pattern of vegetation extremely well. Not only the sort of seasonal patterns with a lot of vegetation in the Amazon, Eastern US, Africa, but the seasonal pattern of changes in vegetation seem to track very nicely the uh uh the patterns of the vegetation, and uh it's uh it's quite at this point uh quite compelling that, that this happens uh, a very simple winded way of looking at this from my point of view is that you have this fluorescence signal signal f s uh which is equal to the incident light that's uh on this the vegetation, which is in the field of view of the satellite, uh, that light could be on the ground or on the leaves, and this term, FPAR, is the term we use often in uh, models of uh, uh, carbon cycle models to indicate the fractional absorption of photosynthetically active radiation. So uh, if the light falls on the ground, it's not used, but if if it falls on chlorophyll, then it's potentially useful. We have another term which is physiologically and biophysically related, which is essentially the return uh, efficiency with which that light is used to do uh, something with the, in this case, generate fluorescence. And then another term stuck on here has to do with the optics, both of the light collection by the satellite and the uh, probability of the light coming from a leaf that's struck someplace uh, by a photon someplace in the canopy, it fluoresces. What's the probability of that getting back out and getting back to the satellite, which is really a function of the optical structure uh, of the canopy? So that's that's sort of the the way I, I look at it as a kind of simplistic uh, uh, measurement or a sim- simplistic process. So uh, for the purposes of my talk, GOSAT's a complex retrieval system, but it really makes a very simple measurement. Uh, it's taking a nadir view, it's looking straight down, uh, approximately solar noon, and you would only get a signal that you record under clear sky. So it's, uh, you're making measurements over and over again under fairly repeatable conditions, uh, repeatable geoma- geometry, uh, and that sort of thing. And photosynthesis, since it's clear day, uh, it's being steadily illuminated, uh, It's probably near its peak daily value and probably steady, so we can forget about the Kautsky kinds of jumps and wiggles and that sort of thing for, for this. And the glow is, Extremely specific for plants doing photosynthesis. Now, I don't have an image, particularly of photosynthesis of, of fluorescence uh, wall-to-wall, but uh, I, I really like the the, uh, the analogy between the night sky view or the night view of the planet, looking at the lights of uh, uh, our, our streetlights uh, at night. I suppose that. Uh, Street lights are one of the possible contaminations of fluorescence, but I, I think they're probably pretty small. Uh, and if you look at it from these equations, this is the equation I showed you before. One way of looking at photosynthesis is that gross primary productivity this photosynthesis is proportional to the incident light and the light fraction of that light that's absorbed. Those two terms are the same here and you have a light-use efficiency for photosynthesis in, uh, 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 that, that translates that into CO2-fixed. Well, if you've got these two, these two terms that are part of the same equation, they can be eliminated, and uh, you can uh, at least predict that the gross primary productivity should be proportional to the uh, fluorescence scaled by the relative... Uh, efficiencies, quantum efficiencies for the two processes. And of course, this uh, uh, optical factor which affects the fluorescence, but not the photosynthesis. So it potentially, is it, is it really that simple? Potentially a simple answer. So uh, this is a composite of several graphs which was, are in Christian's original paper. Uh, all of them showing uh, nice correlations between fluorescence, leaf area, leaf area index, uh, vegetation index, fractional absorption by par, and some calculated rates of photosynthesis for corresponding uh, grid cells and times. Uh, so let's look at this a little bit more carefully. Uh, as you recall, I said uh, fluorescence should be proportional to f par. Well, it doesn't look too good here. You got uh, only a correlation coefficient of uh, 0.6, 0.4. But uh, one of the things which was broken out in this graph is the uh, temperature of the particular pieces of land that they're looking at. And uh, down here, the blue pixels are cold, the red pixels are hot. You look here, gee, it's a nice, straight line, if you forget about these uh, uh, do I? Hmm. Well, I must have dropped a slide, but I, I did have a, uh, I did have these all circled. If you look, it's there. It's, it's, there. it's there, I just can't see it. Yeah. Okay. It just isn't on my screen now for some reason. Okay. Uh, but uh, you drop these out. It is pretty linear. Not too bad. Yeah, Thomas. Oh, I, I think it would probably be pretty close. I mean, my, my point here is, to begin with, that uh, we, if we ignore these, if we say these cold pixels, which are boreal forest and things like that, uh, are probably uh, have a fairly good, they, they absor- are absorbing a fair amount of light. This, this is determined by their spectral reflectance in, uh, for a sec- example, of a uh, satellite like MODIS, uh, they have fairly good uh, reflect high ref Vegetation index is fairly high, ab- apparently absorbing a fair amount of radiation, but in this particular case, they're not uh, giving us very much fluorescence. Uh, so y- you might expect that there was, if there was something going on with this term, that would uh, the. If those plants were not, uh, didn't have a very high light use efficiency, maybe the fluorescence was indicating that. Uh, Maybe that's why these things are off in a corner here, but uh, many of the plants of the world are essentially doing photosynthesis in a way which is linearly dependent upon the light absorbed. And that one way of looking at it is that a, a large driver of the fluorescence changes that one gets are really due to these changes in Fpar. We'll come back to that one, let's just do that now. So uh, these are presumably being driven by the same Fpar. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm assuming that. And in this particular case, both of these models, this one more or less a light use efficiency model, this more a parameterized model of uh, uh, using kind of a machine learning approach have pulled these pixels, these blue pixels, back onto the line. So uh, that suggests that uh, there is probably something uh, associated with both of those. So a large part of the variability is due to Fpar, but the physiology also seems to have an effect. And it seems to be the effect that uh, the fluorescence yield and the photochemical yield appear to co-vary, keeping the ratio uh, very constant under some conditions and causing that ratio to change under conditions where stress is like cold temperature. Or if you looked at those pixels, there are a number of hot pixels out there in the... Uh, and, it turn- and most of them are right in the middle where you kind of expect uh, water-limited environments to be as opposed to, say, in the... Uh, 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 in the tropics where everything's green and stays green much of the time. Uh, however, in the, one of the other things that we're really wanting to get at in this meeting is that the calibration experiments at the scale that we're doing these measurements are really poor. So uh, this is one experiment which was done by a group in France, uh, showing fluorescence measured from a tower above a cornfield using uh, essentially then sun-induced fluorescence. And what they were fortunate enough to find was a sequence of days where there was, uh, the canopy was in good shape, there was a drought and then it rained and the canopy recovered. And you can see that the fluorescence (coughs) is high, drops, and comes back nearly to where it was. And they analyzed the (laughs) <laughs> light interception by the canopy and found that there really wasn't very much loss of light interception in this portion of the canopy, so that, or this portion of the experiment when the fluorescence went down. So it's, it looks like there's something interesting going on there. Uh, this is, uh, these are experiments of Jama Flexis uh, published in 90, 2002. Uh, these are a series of grapevine experiments where the grapevines were uh, watered uh, uh, very sparingly. Uh, And uh, they experienced increasing drought stress. And uh, these are actual experiments where light intensity was changed. The uh, drought stress index that was used was the conductance of the plants. So the stomata are open here and closed here. Uh, What you see is fluorescence is going generally down, particularly here at high light intensities. And this is at a constant light intensity of 750, uh, 750, so about here. And as the stress develops, you get the same sort of pattern. This is a leaf pattern. But it's uh, quite clear that there's there's a stress effect. Uh, JAMA sent me a bunch of data uh, done with 10 species uh, before, during, and after drought experiments. and what I did was to analyze these in terms of the way I thought you could easily put this into a photosynthesis model. Essentially, what's the actual rate of electron transport versus the potential rate, what you could have gotten if there wasn't any feedback from Photosystem two. Uh And what you get is something which, par- which is very similar to the grapevine experiments, that fluorescence goes up and then comes back down again. Uh, dynamic range of about two and a half or something like that. Uh, yeah? Yeah, now this is the electron transport rate that is the actual under the conditions of the experiment. And this is what would have occurred if there were no restrictions on the Photosystem II chemistry. So this is what you would have gotten, and maybe I've got the slide here. Yeah. Uh, so if there were, if this thing were just a straight pass through, with no resistance associated with it, that's what this light would would give out here. So it's essentially the 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 uh, transport the transfer function of this IC unit, and. Uh, What's happening is that these feedback mechanisms actually, as uh, you noticed, fluorescent went up, and then it came back down again. It's always been a kind of puzzling pattern. One of the feedback mechanisms, which is essentially analogous to a resistor, uh, causes fluorescence to go up. So as the flux goes up through the system, there is an, uh, an increase, a slight increase, in fluorescence coming out of the system. One of the other mechanisms which cause photosynthesis to shut down, the photosynthesis two unit shut down, which are more like uh, uh, IC functions, uh, those actually cause fluorescence to go down. So you have these two contradictory things happening with different portions of this feedback mechanism. Uh, This is the first time you you hit it, but that's uh, what I hope to be able to do is to get it clear to you that these are not contradictory things or unexpected things. This increase, at particularly at low light intensities and low fluxes, is due to uh, the kind of resistive properties of this and the decline which happens at higher uh, levels of stress are due to the control uh, processes. The control processes. So, this is just quickly, and I think we'll just skip through this. The uh, relative fluorescence just follows this equation. This is the term which goes into here, which is the, uh, the ratio of, uh, uh, should be the other way around, the ratio of the actual over the, uh, the, the potential. Where the, uh, the, this is calculated from the photosynthetic rate, uh, you can use any model to do that, and this is the, uh, the, act, the potential, which is just a function of the light intensity, the absorption, and the quantum yield. As long as you make sure that this equals this when there's no, uh, no stress, it'll function pretty well with an equation like that. Uh, the, it's sensitive to the intercellular partial pressure of CO2 and to the temperature, which affects the compensation point of the leaf uh, these are things related to photorespiration, and we won't deal with that here, but they, uh, they do fit into this. If we're looking at, uh, for example, CO2 fixation as a, as a kind of indicator of things, that is, uh, that there are temperature effects that have to be dealt with. There are stromal effects which have to be dealt with. But uh, we'll also come to the point that fluorescence can actually be used to uh, jump over some of these problems. So just to kind of pick it up here, the leaf scale calibrations are relatively routine. Uh, The variations uh, from leaf to leaf in the absolute yield, and this is something we don't, uh, I haven't talked about yet, but it is something that worries us, and we'll have to pick this up, that leaf to leaf, the fluorescence levels seem to vary while the kinetics, the variations in the way that fluorescence varies, are much more conservative. Uh, It can be added to photosynthesis models fairly easily. Uh, The scaling from the leaf to the canopy is tricky, but we're already doing this for GPP, and uh, in fact, what we're doing for fluorescence isn't much scarier than we're doing for GPP. We've just gotten used to doing it. Uh, The radiation transport stuff in, in the canopy... Uh, is something, in addition, that will have to be uh, included, but it's already in a model uh, called SCOPE, which we'll discuss some in the meeting, I'm sure. Uh, this is just uh, some simulations from that showing uh, this is this is a hot spot in the canopy. Corresponds here to this. is These are actual measurements from a reflect- measuring reflectance. And you can see that If you happen to be looking right straight down the solar beam, you get a lot more light reflected from a canopy than if you're slightly off-beam, and it slopes as you go away. Uh, Those are things which we'll have to uh, consider and uh, understand. Uh, For example, one doesn't want to be measuring fluorescence, I think, right in this peak. It's going to jump around quite a bit. I wanted to say a little bit now about mechanisms controlling fluorescence. Uh, And that uses a different kind of fluorimeter. Fluorimeter that uh, uses a modulated light. So you get an AC fluorescent signal coming off which can be distinguished from the background fluorescence that's caused by any changes in steady state light. So this measures directly the fluorescence yield. Uh, and this is a small. I brought a little instrument, one of these, along, and we can play with it some and make, maybe make some measurements on some leaves. Uh, so it's it's very good at making uh, chlorophyll fluorescence measurements, and particularly in looking at these at things that happen over the time constants of these feedback processes. So just a, briefly, the feedback processes that we're interested in. Here's photosystem two, and it passes things on in its photosynthetic membrane to diffusible substances, one of which is plastoquinone, which, if it backs up and becomes reduced, causes this resistive feedback on photosystem two. Another thing that happens is that these uh, reactions take protons, hydrogen ions, from one side of the membrane to the other either producing it in the, make, in the making of oxygen or transporting them. And uh, the pH on one side of the membrane is driven more acid than on the other side of the membrane. And that is a mechanism of storing energy that's used for ATP formation. Uh, if, though, for example, the availability of ADP here might become limiting because, say, CO2 is not being fixed at appropriate rate, Then uh, the leak back of these protons to make ATP stops. This becomes more acid, and the system can uh, can feel the effect of that acid. Another thing which happens is that as this becomes more acid, there's a change in what's called the xanthophyll cycle, which are some carotenoids in the membrane. If it's in a relaxed state, these carotenoids are in a uh, this This state with an epoxide band bond here at this at the terminus of this long uh, conjugated double bond chain uh, acidification of the environment where this enzyme lives this stuff lives in the membrane uh, causes those epoxide band bonds to be removed and increases the length of that conjugated double bond chain which changes the properties of this molecule and makes it quite different from this molecule. And that is a, uh, a component of the feedback on this system. Uh, here again in the diagram, this is the plastoquinone loop going back. The, the delta pH loop, uh, it takes about 30 seconds for the delta pH to build up or dis- dissipate as a, as a sort of time constant. It can have a direct effect on Photosystem two, but as I mentioned, it also causes this change in the xanthophyll content of the pigments in the membrane, and that takes a bit longer, and it feeds back by effectively increasing gain of this pH regulation. There's probably more than a single mechanism involved, but that, in a kind of a nutshell, is what's happening. So that... uh, you can uh, get uh, you 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 can uh, get feedbacks that come in kind of a hierarchy Now, if you have a a measurement system that allows you to look at this very quickly, you could for example, use a short burst of light and reduce this and cause this mechanism to come fully active while this mechanism hasn't turned on yet, and uh, you can also. Uh, do things to examine the uh, impact of this, particularly as we'll come to this is something which causes an absorbance change in the leaf because you've changed from one pigment to another. So, uh, this is just a trace where fluorescence is being measured by this uh, fluorescent yield system. Turn on a bright light, the fluorescence goes up and it comes back down again. You turn on an extra bright light and you get these peaks. These are coming about because of the reduction of the plastoquinone. This is coming about because of feedback in delta pH and addition of this uh, xanthophyll, zeaxanthin, to the system, which is causing it to to progressively go down. This is a bright enough light that the system has to uh, adapt to it. Uh, So just hit it quick. You see this. Uh, this then doesn't change, so you can see how much of it is left. And you can break those apart into different components. Uh, I think it's probably not useful to really try and separate those. The main thing here is that Bernard Gentil and others uh, worked out a relationship, I worked out a competing one, uh, that uh, uses the uh, uh, responses of the system to these quick perturbations and to the long-term changes in fluorescence yield. Uh, And theoretically, those can be related to the actual efficiency of light utilization in the pigment system. And if you look at the electron transport rate, measured by looking at CO2 exchange and correcting for all the things that could happen as a result of changes in partial pressure and temperature and that sort of thing, compare it to the electron transport rate measured by using an equation like this, you get a nice correlation between the two so that actually you could take an instrument like this and measure the fluorescence with PAM fluorimeter, uh, get the electron transport rate, and you can also get the steady state fluorescence. So there's a fairly good way of uh, relating the electron trans- getting the electron transport rate and la- relating it to the, uh, the CO2 or to the, uh, the quenching of uh, the changes in fluorescence yield. There's some remaining problems that I want to sort of just quickly jump into here. At the canopy scale, uh, the changes in uh, Fpar and uh, photosynthetic uh, and, and the uh, photosynthetic yield are kind of entangled. So you've got these two things going on and it's going to be It's going to be a challenge for us to disentangle those Uh, leaves. Plants drop their leaves when they get under drought. Uh, They also change their fluorescence yield. Uh, Canopy-scale calibrations are going to be really difficult. Uh, One thing that's... We do a lot of work at eddy correlation sites, and it's important to get the eddy correlation equipment a few meters above the top of the canopy But if we want to reproduce the geometry that's happening with the satellite, we've got to get up several canopy heights above it. Uh, And I wanted to just highlight something that's really interested me recently, and this is work of Thomas Hilkers, uh, that uh, looks at the xanthophyll cycle, which over long periods of time, if we uh, go back here, maybe it's, I've got it anyway, uh, this is a this is a remotely sensible thing because it 's changing the uh, pigment composition and it gives us information on the feedback so that it may be a, a route that we can use to disentangle these things. Yeah, I did have it there. Uh, this is just showing that there's a change in reflectance due to the change and that you can come up with a uh, an index which gives you a, a measurable uh, way of looking at that change in the canopy by looking at reflectances at 570, which is a reference, and 531, which is where it uh, actually changes. These are some experiments which John Gammon did at Carnegie in the late 80s. This, uh, he's kind of got gray hair now, but this is, this is him as a kid. Uh, and this was a, a sunflower crop which was grown. The idea was that you could measure these changes uh, over long periods of time, and they're kind of hard to disentangle from uh, other changes that may happen in the canopy. So put a uh, black cloth over the canopy and put a radiometer above it and measure what happens. And what you see is that uh, photosynthesis is initially turned down because the carboxylase is inactive. Uh, You get... A change in uh, the reflectance in these long wavelengths around where chlorophyll uh, 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 emits, and uh it increases uh, with time this uh it's a decrease in fluorescence due to that uh it's interesting that uh that continues out into the uh into, into wavelengths beyond 800, which I think we'll find interesting with some of the things that Joanna has been working with. Uh, you also see a change here in the xanthophyll pigments. So these, these happen quickly. Uh, you can do it in the lab where you change, say, light intensity or CO2 concentration. You get predicted changes in the steady state levels of these uh, pigments. So uh, and this just shows that the kinetics sort of all go together. Uh, it provides a nice independent way of looking, I think, at the quench things that are affecting quenching. So it's something that we can look at in addition to fluorescence. It works though best in difference mode because there's a lot of background changes in the carotenoids which contaminate this. And what uh, Thomas has worked out and with his colleagues is a tower-mounted system which essentially does the same thing as pulling the the cover off the canopy by looking at different angles uh, with respect to the sun illumination of the canopy. So you're looking at sun and shade leaves uh, with a system that looks like this. This is a camera, uh, radiometer, reference. And this is what you would see for that PRI in the uh, hot spot, which is looking at the illuminated leaves and the cold spot where you're looking at fewer illuminated leaves. Uh, this is the idea, it rotates around, swings up and down, and measures the uh, reflectance off the canopy. And this is kind of just showing that. You can see that some of the is illuminated, some of it isn't. Uh, you can see that the PR- these are different illumination conditions. This would be under bright light. You see a lot of PRI change when the uh, uh, it's bright and you're looking at the hot spot. If you look at the whole uh, area of uh, illumination, the whole pattern which you get from making these measurements, uh, you get a whole suite of uh, reflectance, uh, reflectances, and you can actually uh, work out from those, not just the PRI, but the bidirectional reflectance function of the canopy. So uh, that turns out, I think, to be something where it's a very clever way, I think, they've been able to do this with the PRI, and I think that we might be able to do it with fluorescence, that we can uh, actually recover from a, a measurement that's typically made sitting on a tower a few meters above the canopy uh, and transform that into something which would reproduce what the satellite ought to see from this suite of measurements. So, uh, just to kind of uh, sum up, we should be able to, uh, my, my feeling is that we, we should be able to combine these, or at least examine the possibilities of, exa- of combining these and making some, uh, some use of that. So, just to kind of conclude, there's this strong empirical evidence that FS gives us useful information. It's sensitive to the combined influences of changes in optics and physiology. Uh, calibration and validation at the GOSAT scale is going to be really a challenge, and uh, uh, it's not too dissimilar to the sort of problems that we have with uh, trying to do GPP. And it's uh, probably at least as good, I think, as we have for GPP. It's just, we are a lot more interested or used to working with the problems that GPP has. So I don't think I can overestimate the importance that we attach to this fluorescence signal and to this PRI signal uh, as a way to to check on GPP. And uh, that's the work we have to do. So thank you very much.